Well, hello everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 204. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's guest, Anna Maria Caballero, is here. She'll be with us in just a few minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share, subscribe, follow us on all the social media things, uh, retweet, tell your friends that it's a fun episode and they should watch this. Anything you can do to help poetry spread around the internet and the world is greatly appreciated. Uh, we've got an action-packed show for you today. Uh, we're going to start like we usually do with our Poets Respond Poet. And we have a familiar face, um, but for the first time on scene, on location, um, T.R. Pelson is here. Hey, T.R., how you doing? Good, you? <laughs> yeah, that is the perfect setting for this poem. So you had the Sunday poem, um, and it was uh, Teamsters in the Flock Beside the Lake. And this is a story I didn't hear except for from you. I, I you know, I don't watch much news, um, but I but I hadn't heard anything about it. So um, can you tell us a little bit about the the situation and how the poem came to be? Well, um, I mean, there's a lot of strikes going on, and there's a lot of labor movement type stuff going on now. Um, we recently elected new leadership to the Teamsters a couple of years ago, and their promises to us were, "We're no more concessions. We're going to have the best contract ever." So it, um, our strike, our um, contract is up August 1st, tomorrow. So it, it led to some pretty tough negotiations. And the big thing that was at stake was part-time pay. Mm-hmm. And the reason, the reason for that is because the Teamsters would like, this is just my opinion, but take it or leave it. And the Teamsters would like nothing or better than to organize Amazon. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, and personally, I think that would be better for everybody if, Amazon were organized and there were more unioniz- unionization in the world, but that's just me. Yeah. Well, it's and because there's Am- a lot less than there used to be, which is a, a significant yeah. problem. Yeah. I mean, my whole lifetime, it's pretty much been the way it is, but my mom tells stories of the glory days when unions were actually existed. Mm-hmm. So anyway, because Amazon is mostly part timers, the Teamsters wanted to get us a really good contract for part-timers so that they can go to the Amazon and say, look what we can do for you. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of it in a nutshell, but there was a, there is a handshake agreement and we vote later in August and the, the contract we've gotten is pretty sexy numbers wise. Um, we have a meeting next week to decide, um, you know, at our local to go over all the fine print, which I'm, Concerned that there were possibly concessions in the fine print because the numbers look so good mm-hmm. as far as wages and so on. Well, that's interesting. So, yeah. and, and so this became a guzzle uh, somehow. So how, yeah. how did you turn you know such a sort of dry political um, you know work story into a really interesting guzzle? Well, because I, you know, it's a lot of there's a lot of PR involved and a lot of imagery, like imagery with how people perceive unions. I mean, there's a lot of, like among the working class and other blue collar workers, there's some resentment towards union members because we make more money than they do typically. So there's, and then there's resentment from the other side of it. Um, management that say that we're greedy because, I mean, God only knows why. I mean, Jeff Bezos makes more per minute than I make all year, for example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because of the image and because of things, the way things are perceived and um, 
it just sort of came to me when I was, you know, because I do a lot of stuff where I work with, you know, religion and with um, some of the biblical myths. And I like to play around with that stuff. And the idea of the haves versus the have, have nots, it just sort of all fit in and turned into a poem. Yeah, well, we always love foreign poetry. Wish there was more. Uh, it's always a goal, you know. So when we see something that, that's well done in a form, it's always a bonus. And then this is a great uh, example of a guzzle uh, with the the rhyme scheme going on and the and the couplets here. Do you want to go ahead and read it? Sure. Teamsters and the flock beside the lake, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Mark six forty four. Loaves pile up eleven before the wind burnt throng. As Jesus groupies count lake trout and math seems wrong. Dead fish multiply, and on the shore a multitude surrounds them. Disciples fist bump Pharisees, no sunscreen, wrong sandals, and tied in dust. I ask a man who looks like Jesus for another loaf and butter. Your union team is wrong, he says, to crave more filet when some have none. You don't need sugar, cherries, cream. It's wrong to strike a company who's boss eats lobster gold fried rare another jesus man pats my hand you dream wrong dreams to eat and sleep and work should be enough i say i crave more but i'm not a greedy fucker scales gleam wrong in cloud light mahi mahi broken among white caps a ship bears spice swirled loaves wrapped in satin sails lean wrong in windfall jesus says my name wrong makes tea instead of wine Beyond the water, grass grows greener, but wrong. Yeah, excellent guzzle there. Thanks so much for sharing that and joining us from work. And Tiara, it's great to see you there. We've heard so many, uh, you know, many poems coming out of that truck. So it's really interesting to see it in the background. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, I can't stick around. I'll have to catch the rest when it's recorded later. Um, I couldn't get the day off, so I had to slip it in on a break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, very cool. We're so glad you did. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah. Yep. Take care. And that was T.R. Powelson with uh, uh, Sunday's poem, Teamsters in the Flock Beside the Lake. Now we're going to take a quick break and go uh, to our main guest, Anna Maria Caballero. So uh, sit tight and we will be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Um, Anna Maria Caballero is a Colombian-American literary artist whose work explores how biology delimits societal and cultural rights, ripping the veil off romanticized motherhood and questioning notions that package sacrifice as a virtue, which is a great description of this book, actually. Um, she's a recipient of the Beverly International Prize, Columbia's Jose Manuel Arango National Poetry Prize, the Steel Toe Books Poetry Prize, a Seven Foundation Grant, and has been a finalist for numerous other literary prizes, including the prestigious Kurt Brown, Vesser Miller, and Academy of American Poet Prizes. Author of five books in Spanish and English, with a sixth forthcoming in 2024, Caballero has presented her poems as fine art at leading international venues, such as Bitforms, Unit, um, Gazelle Art House and many more. Um, she's released work in partnership with Time, ABC, and Playboy. Widely recognized as a digital poetry pioneer whose own practice is transforming the way language is exhibited, experienced, and transacted. She's also the co-founder of Web3 literary gallery The Verseverse, which uh, Sasha Stiles was a co-founder, last week's guest if you missed that one, uh, which was long-listed. This was uh, for the Lumen Prize and the Digital Innovation in Art Award. And here she is, Anna Maria Caballero. Hey, Anna, how are you doing today? 
Hi, how are you? I'm great. It's just so fun to have you on. I've really, you know, over the last year, um, I've been become familiarized with all the things that you do. There's so many different avenues and ways that you're publishing poetry. And it's, it's poetry that works in, in a traditional way. But then also you're getting out there in so many different unique ways, which is so fascinating. Um, so it's really cool to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here um, and to share my books and to share my, my digital poetry as well. It's great to be able to talk about both. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, and your new book is Appetit Mall. We're going to start out with that and then we'll go out, to, uh, you know, branch out to other things. Uh, why don't you start out by reading a section and then we'll talk a little bit more about the book just so people can get their feet wet. Sure. I'm going to start with, with one of the early sections of the book. In ER, we are seen by French doctor which is unusual and relevant because doctor asks boy if he likes any French soccer teams. Boy is wearing Italian soccer jersey. Yes, Paris Saint-Germain, boy says. Ah, doctor says, you like PSG and you like Juventus too, huh? Boy is wearing soccer jersey with the number and name of Juan Guillermo Cuadrado a well-known Colombian striker who plays for Juventus, a team from Italian city of Turin. Yes. French doctor asks, is Quadrado still alive? The French doctor is making a dark joke. Is Quadrado still alive? The question is a joke. A question asked because a Colombian soccer player was murdered nearly 30 years ago as gruesome, ghastly punishment for scoring a self-goal in a World Cup, the 1994 Italian World Cup. My husband, boy, I are Colombian, a fact we had already shared with doctor. All this important because boy laughs, but the joke the question is not funny. The doctor's joke is not funny. Not even bad funny. Perhaps uncomfortable funny, perhaps uncanny and appropriate funny, perhaps adult offensive funny, but not kid funny. And boy laughs. Boy who does not, I am certain, recognize joke. Boy laughs a lot. My voice, it's happening. And he, emergency room pediatric doctor who recognizes he should not have said what he just said knows too, that it is happening. Doctor orders CT scan. Yeah, and that's one of the early passages in um, in the book, Appetit Mall. Um, it's sort of, sort of a hybrid um, prose memoir. There's, I mean, there's a lot of poetry in it. There's a whole, it's sort of mixed media um, work of art um, as it goes through this experience of um, your son's seizures. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, about how the book came to be in this form? Like why write this hybrid? It's not a form that I'm you know, too familiar with that, that sort of creative nonfiction hybridizing thing. You know, I think of like Bluets and books like that is among the few I've read. Um, so, so what was it that, that drew you to this form um, for this, this subject matter? Well, you know, the book is about my son's seizures. He started having seizures out of the blue, and they escalated really quickly. Um, and I wrote the book. I wasn't 
preparing to write a book. It, it kind of wrote itself. It kind of poured out of me. And it's a convulsed text. It's interrupted because his seizures were just interrupting our life. And so I would write the book in bursts, like little moments interspersed, interspersed with, with his seizures, with doctor visits, with thoughts, with um, new medications, with new treatments. And that's how the book came to be. Um, I was also at the time taking a class on um, on hybrid forms with Julie Marie Wade mm-hmm. um, at Florida International University. And so I was really immersed in books that were taking risks in their form. And so, you know, the fact that I was taking this class while my son started having seizures and we had assignments for the class. And really, I started writing it because it was pouring out of me, but also to, to, to hand into my teacher. Um, and it just kept going and it became a book. And then I ended up doing actually an independent study with her to transform, you know, the hundreds of pages that I wrote um, over the course of four months into into a manuscript. Yeah, well, it's a great explanation of how the book feels to read. And I hadn't really thought about that, about the interruption of the seizures. But that is the there's a sort of a harrowing journey that you're on throughout the book. And then, you know, with a, a positive resolution toward the end. And, you know, so the the drama of that and the, the disjointed of us really, uh, really is passed along through the style. So it works really well, I think. Um, before we go into more of the book, let's talk a little bit about your background um, and how you came to be a writer. Was it something that you always wanted to do from when you were young? Um, and how did you discover poetry and why move through creative writing in the way that you have? I've been writing my whole life, Tim. Um, I started writing, you know, in middle school poems and took my first creative writing class in high school, studied literature in college and worked in various communication related jobs throughout my adult life. Um, I stopped working for the first time when my son was born 10 years ago and started collecting all the poems that I'd written over so many years. At that point, I was living in Colombia, so I was, I'd written a lot in Spanish. So I started off with my Spanish poems and I gathered them into a collection and started sending them out to different, you know, prizes. And I actually ended up winning um, Colombia's national Jose Manuel Arango prize. Um, I was the first woman to win it. And it's, it's, you know, it's a significant poetry prize in Colombia. And it was really surprising more than anything. It was just really surprising. Um, and after that, it, I mean, it changed my life. I started focusing on my English verse and publishing some books in, in, in English and working to get published, um, you know, individual poems and journals and just really leaning into an aspect of myself that had always been there, but that I'd never sort of dared to turn into a life. Hmm. And then um, I did. Yeah, it is interesting how I've heard that a lot, that like, you know, winning an award or getting some kind of recognition allows you permission to have something that you were always passionate about and, and wish to do. And that's really one of the just wonderful things about prizes. And, you know, that that, that kind of validation allows you to pursue your dreams, really. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Um, if you look back at your earlier poems, how have, how have they evolved over time? Um, do you think stylistically? I mean, obviously, you know, in a different language at first and then into English. Um, but, but how do they evolve from, um, from the earlier poems to the new? Like, wh- what's your journey as a poet uh, taken you? I, my poetry truly accompanies my life. I, I write very much about the intimate details of my life. It's a place where I go to be honest, where I go to understand what I'm feeling. Um, I consider my poems, you know, moments of rebellion made public. It's, it's where I protest against um, daily transactions that we encounter as women, 
um, as mothers, as individuals, as humans in the world, um, I, I feel like it's evolved thematically from, you know, resisting sort of um, the pressures of a very conservative Colombian society in my 20s to young motherhood, to facing my father's illness, um, to having, you know, problems with my husband um, in, in my marriage. Um, and like Alice, Alicia Ostriker says, I write about family endlessly, endlessly. I, I just mm -hmm. think that it's such a rich rich realm, Tim. Um, the book that I have coming out next year is is called Mammal and it's about it's about motherhood. And so that's, you know, sort of something that I'm really deeply immersed in right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and just, you know, powerfully so. Uh, I think um, since this book is has a narrative arc, I think it'd be best to read, um, you know, you know a, a chunk of this book, you know, maybe leafing through a little bit so people can get a sense of it. And then we'll move on to, to other other genres and things. But uh, do you want to start reading uh, from, yeah. from the book? Sure. Um, I have a couple passages. Um, Simultaneous to seizure is work, is operative logistics of life. Fingers and wrists all day respond to the various imperative matters at hand. The company I run is for sale. Getting ready for sale is a lot of document spreadsheet work, a lot of arranging meetings, a lot of phone calls, a lot of travel work. Also, lawsuit my company filed is ready to settle. Lawsuit is ready to settle because of Ellie, Elizabeth, the good witch at the heart of my Bogota. Really, it is. Get a man to talk to the guy whose company you are suing, she says. This guy will never settle with a woman. He is a guy who does not like the fiber of women. So I get Nelson David to talk to the guy whose company I am suing. Husband, Nelson David, loves the job of talking to the guy whose company I'm suing. Loves intermediary conciliatory role. The role of good guy trying to talk some sense into wife and get her to settle but you don't know my wife, don't know how stubborn she is, and she will never settle for that, so you better take offer back to your board friend. She is source of laughter for husband and I. She, the wife who won't settle, will not, will never settle for less, for anything less than that. She is me, but she is not me, the wife. That wife, whom you don't know, do not know what she is like. She is me the wife, me, if I was not looking. But I am looking, looking hard, because I am the wife who looks. I laugh, laugh at guy who thinks he and husband are in secret sharing a laugh. Husband teaches me how settling is fun because guy will lose, and it is a matter of waiting. But there are many ways to wait. Not answering is a form of wait. Answering patiently is another. Answering sufficiently, then completely, forgetting to respond to guy whose company I am suing, have been suing, for longer than 20 months. With the right weight, husband says, you will reach the right amount. In the meantime, this guy is a comedy. Let's laugh. Ellie, Elizabeth, beloved witch, is right. I tell her too, so we, the fiber women, can laugh. Weeks passed, 
Husband text transcribes the messages drafted by my female hand, sends responses to our comic guy. It is slow, this moving forward between guy, between woman and man, who are husband and wife, who are mom and dad, who are tired of counting the seizures of their boy. Mom and dad perfect the wait, forget to respond. Seizures consume, they truly forget, outmaneuver the amount. Simultaneous to seizure is work, anything simultaneous to seizure, no matter how laughable, is work. There is a little girl in the story of boy with sudden idiopathic seizure, his sister, younger sister of boy with seizure is three. She is fine and good, medically, clinically unremarkable. Also funny, too funny. Out of context, funny in her home. Out of place, like sudden bout of seizing laughter. But in place, holding place, fastening parents firm to place, to day to day, to within, to inside, to context of home, which she holds, beholds, as setting of story with only happy end. I watch her pretend to be a puppy, asking me to invent a leash, are you real, I say? She thinks question is real, so she gives real answer. In her three-year-old stumble, she says, My face is real. I am Nina real. Nina real. It feels good to get this answer. I tie a ribbon leash around puppy neck of Nina real. From the surgery meant to drain his brain, my father emerges emerges as a new person for us, for me, for himself to meet. Body is same, name is same, face is same, but brain is not, so person is not. When his brain is drained of excess blood, part of his self is drained as well. At times we thought it was him again, sitting in a large chair, ready to read, listen to Schubert, smoke a pipe, sneak a drink. Father, come back, come back to tell us all. But then we tried talk and talk did not work. Quien, he says when he hears us talk, hears us speak. Que, como, he says often, softly. Does not expect answers to the words of questions, sometimes the only words he sounds. Who, what, how. This is what father wants to know. Who father is. What father is. How. Who father is now. And what. What happened. And how. When is not a question. Because when has an answer. When. Never. Never forget forever again. Let me know when you want to we just transition. <laughs> well, um, maybe we should uh, talk a little bit about the style of the book, because people have mentioned already that, that, that there's a way that um, through sort of clipping the articles out that, that brings up the poetry in the, in the book. 
Um, can you tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about that style, um, about um, about drawing? It, it's that fragmentary nature you were talking about before. Um, but but how did that style come to be, and, and what was the, the purpose of, of, of choosing that way? Well, I mean, not only is the style fragmented in the sense that there's these, like, clips of experience, but there's also, um, I cut out a lot of articles in the actual syntax of, of the text. Um, I feel like I was trying to carve out anything that wasn't absolutely essential and just leave the nouns, the verbs, the adjectives, the real essence and gut of what I was living. Um, I also feel like experience is so interrupted always. And the book really reflects that. It's moments. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what we remember are moments. If we go back, even on the day that we had today and try to like re-exist or relive it, it's really only moments and fragments that we're able to remember and take away with us. And that's how the book was. Um, and again, you know, it's 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 a convulsed, seized text. I really feel like we were taken mm-hmm. by something foreign and sudden that came into our lives. Um, and I, I relate very much to to fragmented text. I, I really think that um, it's the ways our minds works. It's the way life feels. Um, and I wanted to convey that. I really wanted people to feel like they were living what I lived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it really plays up the sort of flashes of imagery too, you know, and, and it sort of, you know, just that, that way that we move throughout our memory. So it's a, it's a fascinating and really well put how that works. Um, do you want to keep reading the, the rest of uh, the sections? Sure, I'll read. I'll read, um, I'll read a, sec- a couple more sections. In terms of terms, the etymology of epilepsy is this. Two parts. Two terms, two words, both Greek. Epi and lambanane. Epi is everywhere. Epidermis, epilogue, epithet, epidemic, epidural, epicenter, epitaph, epistemology, episode, epigenetics. Epi can mean all of these things. Over, under, on top of, near, before, after, toward, against, among, upon. Epi, a term of secondary location in reference to primary location of primary thing. It is not a term of during, of within, of inside, not even a term of through. It is a term of before and or after, over and or under, toward and or against. It is a term of versus. Problem is, lambanane is also secondary in its operation. It means all of these things. To overtake, to seize, to attack, to lay hold of. Lay hold of what? Overtake whom? Attack what? Lambanane evolved into stem of word, into core. Leps. Lepsis. Epi, lepsis, location in terms of attack, temporality in terms of take. If epilepsy were a sentence, sentence would be without subject, without object. There is only verb, proposition, action, and direction. The act of asking with question absent. 
boy seizes, boys over, toward, before, after, near, against, taken. Who is taken? By whom? For whom? The word does not tell what it means. Epilepsy, sum of parts, is one definable word whose definition has evolved because it describes a medical clinical disease whose understanding, too, has evolved. Falling sickness was the native term in English for the disease before epilepsy grabbed hold. Falling sickness is clear in that it does not hide meaning it does not have. You are sick because you fall. After finishing the specter, I begin by chance, by choice, with Anne Carson of the assiduously tragic, assiduously Greek. How I wish I could send Jonathan a copy of Carson's autobiography of Red. It is salvation, salvation via page. Carson unveils her story by speaking of epithet, epithet, a nickname for nickname. She launches her story by speaking of words and names and consumption of how adjectives are what give names a way into, a way through life. How adjectives order via description, how they become the latches of being. In the selection of one specific depiction out of the infinite field of possibilities, life becomes. In the same way DNA activates proteins into traits, adjectives sketch the arches of a face, in verses, become. My father the nicknamer. Boy, too, nicknames. Terms of endearment, terms of control. It's not just the conquistador, the, the cartographer who seeks to name. It is the loving parent, the adoring fan, the charming, generous father I had once. Pupina, Italian for little girl. The cipher is little girl. Come what burden, what blessing may, I answer, I turn my body when the audible word of Pupina is said. My father, the nicknamer. Boy, too, nicknames. Terms of endearment, terms of control. It's not just the conquistador, the cartographer who seeks to name. It is the loving parent, the adoring fan, the charming, generous father I had. The doctor, too, when doctor knows names. I only have adjectives for seizures. I do not have a name. Epilepsy names the map, not the place. Idiopathic, disruptive, remarkable. Not enough. I want a name. Lamplight gleamed upon a name. There is always worse. To husband, I say, go online, go. There is always worse. We need to stay positive and grateful. But what I think, what I will to say no longer works. There is nothing left to rationalize, to reconsider, to dip in big, good coffee mug. Not when it's 15 or more seizures per day. Not when the sound of boy drop is caught 
on real-world digital videotape. New adjectives, epithets emerge. Shattering, disruptive, wounding, life-threatening. We send video to our Colombian witch doctors to all. Elsa, as always, the busiest, is first to call. Increase belladona to three times per day and another homeopathic medicine called silicea, five globules four times per day, no video games, absolutely no sugar, but know this is a band-aid until you go to your second opinion. Your goal when you go is to come back with the right medication. It is time, she says, to medicate. Yeah, and that's a great section, a good example of the, the arc of the book and the, and the subject and, and style. Um, and it's just a really powerful book. And reading it, I can't help but think about the ways in which, um, you know, the writing of a book like that is healing. Um, and then what you're doing by sharing it with others is letting them sort of be healed in the same path as you are. When we encounter these kind of events where life is turning their head, we need to know how to how to navigate them and we don't and, and sort of making the meaning out of what's going on is really the way we get through it as human beings. Um, is that something that you felt um, acutely that as you were writing, it was, it was helping you through the uh, events of the book? Absolutely. I felt that I was really um, the pillar of, of my family Tim, as I was going through this. I mean, my husband was having a really hard time. My parents, his parents, our siblings, you know, at the end of the day, I felt like I was sort of the rock of the home. And I really attributed to the fact that I had a place to go be raw, which was in my writing, mm-hmm. um, to really just get it out, like flush it out of my system so that I could keep a level head and a clear path forward and, you know, make decisions that are really hard as a parent. I mean, we chose to not medicate for a long time while we tried alternative methods of healing um, until we basically could no longer not medicate our son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, just, it's a hard thing to imagine because I, um, we, we happen to be dealing with seizures with our dog. We have a German shepherd who um, had seizures. And just the, the frightening of that just with your dog, but to be your son, you know, going through something similar is, um, is, is a scary thing to go through. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, it's a, one of the biggest difficulties, you know, in life's journey is to go through an experience like that. So to come out with a book that can help others, um, you know, so, something it must feel really special to be able to do that. It really does, you know, and epilepsy, unfortunately, is such a stigmatized disease. People have, you know, they kind of recoil at the sound of the word. And even I, I mean, I did, too, because it's it's we're taught to think of like poltergeist seizures and 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 these extreme situations but there's actually you know a lot of of different types of seizures there's over 50 million people that that have some sort of seizure disorder and honestly um you know many of them have perfect you know most of them have perfectly normal lives without even medication um there's absence seizures there's laughing seizures um there's seizures that you know you just kind of um twitch a little bit um but but to be honest, um, I, I really think that the book can help parents and can help people understand and come closer to the, the disease and not feel somehow, um, you know, as an outsider, um, but, but that they can have absolutely normal lives and, and continue to, to enjoy life to the fullest maximum and also heal. Um, you know, we were able to heal our son, I think, because we were really disciplined about 
not only treating the symptom, but treating the disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a great book. And, and really, it was moving to read through uh, last night and this morning. Um, so thanks for sharing that with us. Um, but let's move on to your, your other work, too. And, and you're, um, you know, you, you're one of the founders of the, the Verse Verse. Um, and, you know, the issue that you're in is the NFT poets issue. Um, so, so tell us what, what drew you into NFTs and why publish in an alternative way? I mean, you know, obviously you can publish great books. Uh, you've author of six books um, in the uh, traditional ways, mostly. Um, so, so what drew you to, to sharing poems in a different way than is just sort of the standard that we all go through? Well, I had been sharing my work on social media for quite some time, Tim. Um, I always felt that the life of a published poem was a bit too quiet and a bit too insular. Um, and, you know, I think Rattle is the rare exception where you publish a poem and there's a life to that publishing, right? Like you share it on your, your Rattlecast and then you have the poem of the day that you send to your newsletter and you go through such incredible, generous ends to really get the work of people out. You even offer people the opportunity to to comment on the writing of the work, right? So there's a little bit of behind the scenes. I love that. But most most journals, and I understand it's, it's a lot of work, um, you know, you publish a poem and that's kind of it. You don't really know who reads it, if anyone reads it, what they thought, if it touched anyone. And it's kind of over and, you know, you, you work, as I'm sure you know, sometimes for years on a poem and you wait years sometimes also to hear back and then it gets published. And I just felt like there has to be a little bit more to this. So then I was sharing them in social media and people were reacting and it was, a you know, there was joy to that process. Mm -hmm. um, but when I read about NFTs, it just made so much sense to me. I'm like, oh, great. Now this is digital art transactable as digital art. And so the jump from web two to web three for me was absolutely a natural one. I started investigating and learning all I could about um, this, you know, brave new world that was being built and um, just sharing my work, you know, pretty shamelessly as much as I could. And and um, I not only wanted to share my work, but the, share, but the work of all the people that I'd met in my path as a poet, you know, as, as you've said, I've published several books and I'm in an MFA program. So you, I've, I've met many wonderful poets and I wanted to share their work as well. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to meet Sasha and to meet Kalan Iwamoto um, early on. And together we founded the Verse Verse. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that, that really stands out after doing this, you know, for the last, it was only just over a year ago that I really heard about NFTs as a vehicle for poetry. You know, I just heard what people hear about them and, you know, knew about how blockchains worked, but that's about it. And never thought it being applied to poetry. And over the year, the one thing that really stands out is just is the way that it reverses sort of the economy of poetry, because because it makes poems collectible. It allows you to share them freely. Um, without, you know, losing their value. Because what we normally do is we publish, you know, you have your first publication in a magazine. So don't share it on social media before you publish, because then that'll, you know, you have to hide that first publication. Um, and then once it's published, you only publish in that one journal, and then you wait and wait and wait for a book, which might take 10 years, and then the book comes out. And, you know, and that's that's the cycle of a poem. It's just like, and, and you don't share your poems on social media, of course, or don't put the PDF of the book up, because then people might read it and not buy the book. So you have to hold it back and keep that scarcity so people actually read your stuff. And the whole time we're just trying to like hide poems <laughs> when poems are like the joy of life and we should be sharing poems as widely as possible. And, you know, our theory, the reason what drew me to rattle in the first place is it was uh, way back in, 90, or in 2001 or two when I first discovered it. It was one of the only magazines that put all their poems online. 
And I thought, well, that's a cool way to go about it because then people would read it. And I wouldn't have read all the poems that I did and gotten interested if that weren't the case. Um, and, and so this idea of, of being able to share it without fear of, of some kind of, you know, faux pas or like some kind of, you know, diminishment of your work because you're sharing it um, is just such a draw. And, and is that is that the uh, have you found that the case? Like like when we, um, you know, we publish back issues of Rattle uh, or poems from back issues of Rattle, then a lot of times people go and buy that issue that day. You know, if there's a, you know, a graph of like back issue sales. You know, the day that there's a poem from that issue that we featured online is like a spike in sales. Like it goes up because people want to read stuff that they just saw. Do you find that 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 the more you share, the more value the poems have? Absolutely. You have no idea how many opportunities are coming at me now that I've just like, like you said, like I broke the gate. Like This is my work and I'm putting it out there. And I have, you know, I'm publishing poems for the first time that I love as digital art and I'm not saving them for literary journals. You know, before I was only sharing at one point, only the poems that, um, that had been published because I was saving them right for, mm -hmm. for publication. But now that I'm just like sort of open ribbed about all of it, um, I actually got an email, you know, last night from, you know, this incredible poet who wrote me saying, I want some of your work in my literary journal. And I don't care if it's published, just send me some works. And so I sent him some works that, that were published as digital poems. I'm like, they haven't been published in a journal, but they're published as digital poems. And you know how long editors take to respond. Well, he responded the day I wrote him, which was today, saying, I'm going to publish all of them in the next you know semester. Um, and so you know, this is the first time something that to that level happened, and it just happened today. But honestly, I think... I think sharing our work freely really just invites like abundance, like that energy of abundance. Um, and I really hope that more more literary journals sort of follow in the footsteps of Rattle and also, you know, publish works that have been shared online. I mean, it, it's it's not sustainable for poets, I think, to like hold our breath. It's like we're holding our breath mm -hmm. for months or for years and then we let it out. And it's like such a quick breath. <laughs> it really is, yeah. You know, it's like, you're always kind of gasping for air. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of feel that way with you know working with with traditional publishers. It's it's challenging. Like I, I want there to be like this generosity about the work and sharing it and creating PDFs, and I think that's only going to invite more people to to participate in the book, which will eventually lead to people purchasing it as well, I believe, Tim. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's a new way of thinking, no doubt. Yeah, and it's, it's just the opposite. You know, there, it's not a zero-sum game. It's a, it's a, and we're, you know, a, a model of growth instead of a model of, of um, you know, scarcity. And, um, and, and to me, like the reason I fell in love with poetry as an undergraduate college student, um, I was a science major um, and just taking some elective English classes and posting on a live journal. And it was just so fun to like write a poem and then you post it and then you wake up in the morning and a few people said they liked it. And there was just something so fun and communal about that and meditative and, and you know, that, that feeling of, of opening and, and just that, that whole spirit was something that I loved. Um, and then when I got into more serious publishing, it was like, like this is what we do <laughs> i mean it was hard to believe even that like this is kind of all we get 
And so when my first book came out, I, I went through a period where I was just so unenthusiastic about even writing because um, the, the thought of like just writing something and then holding it for like two years, then it gets in a magazine, then two years later it'll be in a book, which will be published two years after it's accepted. Um, and then, you know, and then some people read it, but not that many. And, and it's just like, what was the point? And, um, and I only started falling in love with writing again when we started doing these rattle casts, to be honest, and with an open mic that everybody would have later, an open mic if you want to share poems. Um, but we have a prompt and we write a poem every week and I just get to write a poem every week and I don't care. And it's just it, that joy comes back when you're just able to share things freely. And I think poetry is held down so much by our inability to share. And so what NFTs do by reversing this economy is allow things to be shared because the more it's shared, the more people like it, the more likely someone will want to collect and, and contribute to the authors they appreciate. And so it just develops this whole different way of looking at the world of how books can sell and, and how poetry or any literature can sell or any art. So um, it's just really cool to see. And I should say, too, I don't know if you know if our um, uh, we're, we're switching to a curation terminology. So instead of talking about publishing poems, we're talking about curating poems. Um, and um, because that's really what matters is that, you know, we're highlighting these poems. And if they were published on social media already, who cares? I mean, these are the poems we're going to highlight. Mm -hmm. We do want to be the first one to curate them because that sort of keeps a speed limit kind of on the submissions coming in and makes it fair all around for, for people, you know, to um, not have a million poems. And it's the same people every time, um, you know, getting that curation. But we're, we're switching that and hoping that other publishers do and start to think in terms of like, I'm a curator um, and the NFT poets really may, may think of that language because in the art world, it's, it's been curation for such a long time. Um, and so it's, it's really interesting, this dynamic. And it's really great to see, you know, all you've done with the verse verse. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, about the verse verse and what, um, what you do there? Sure. So the verse verse is a digital poetry gallery. Um, it's an online gallery. You can find us at theverseverse.com. Um, and we onboard traditional poets. We really try to work with the most acclaimed poets working today. And if you look at our list of poets, I think, I mean, there's many, many names there that um, I think have probably been through Rattlecast, definitely published by Rattle, you know, Pulitzer Prize finalists, Guggenheim Fellows, et cetera, et cetera. And we're trying to bring sort of the, the you know, really, really um, poets who've been working at their craft for a very long time, Tim, to the blockchain um, so that the people who are transacting art, digital art via the blockchain can experience this level of craft. And we pair them with top digital artists to create unique works of art. And we also um, elevate poets, writers who are working, um, have a text-based practice. So, you know, poets like Pierre Gervois, who I know that you, you published and and uh, Sarah Ridgely, for example, too, who does Assemic poetry, and Kevin A. Bosch, who's one of the top digital artists working today, who does a lot of text-based works. You know, they're all they're all in the verse first. We're really proud to 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 showcase their work, and um, we also invite people to play with AI um, and experiment and have some fun with that and create some also some really thoughtful works. Um, you know, for example, I'll give you I'll give you a really exciting example, Tim. So I. I wrote a poem um, during the, the funeral of one of my best friend's fathers. And then I knew him instantly I w wanted it to be um, part of my AI-powered series, our GenTech series, we call them, for generative text. And I was working with um, this artist called Ivona Tao, who does these very moody, beautiful cityscapes. 
and there was a construction going on as I wrote the poem. So I, I wanted it to be paired. I wanted this poem to be paired with her, with her visuals, which were just very dark. And I, I love them. Um, and so I, I worked with AI to expand on the poem and we released it, you know, in, in editions, uh, very affordable editions as part of our AI powered series called Gen Text. And, you know, the collection sold and it was shared and that's great. And we actually just got um, a contract sent to us from the Taiwan annual biennial um, to exhibit the poem, um, you know, during their four months uh, at their main national, um, the, you know, the, 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 the Fine Arts Museum of Taiwan. Um, and the poem is going to be exhibited in this huge, beautiful hall uh, where people are going to be able to see it for, I think it's like four or five months that the biennial lasts. Hmm. And that's a really exciting life for a poem. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. You know? And, and, you know, one of the things that I've always struggled with with Rattle is just to break out of the poetry audience. You know, it feels like it's, it's sort of easy to reach people who are poets and want to submit. I mean, that's really the easiest way to, to reach people is say, hey, submit poems and we'll publish you. You know, if, there, if you have a publishing workshop like the lines out the door. Um, and so it's really easy to find poets and engage with poets, but then to branch out into wider audiences that don't usually read poetry is such a struggle. It's such a hard to know what to do. Like we've had features in like the New York Times and LA Times and things like that, and it hardly generates anything. And, um, you know, and so it's hard to find a way in front of an interested audience that's not already engaged in poetry. And one of the things that's just cool about, about linking up with artists is you've had this whole um, you know, group of people, a huge group of people who admire and appreciate art. I mean, art galleries are one of the most popular destinations in every city, you know? And so they're people who love art that haven't really experienced poetry. And so, so it's, it, it, it's an opportunity to bring poetry to completely new audiences, which is just a wonderful thing. And, and one of the other things I love about it. Absolutely. I mean, I think poetry has as much to gain as audiences who haven't engaged with poetry. It's like total dialogue. Um, you know, we, we are putting poems in, in museums, we're putting poems in art galleries, we're putting poems in music festivals, in places where people would not normally encounter a poem. Um, and now that, you know, digital works of art um, are transactable, digital assets are transactable via the blockchain, there's absolutely no difference between an MP4 of, you know, a, a, that an artist makes uh, to exhibit at a gallery than a digital poem. They're on the exact same Ground. Mm -hmm. So I've participated in exhibitions at, you know, really like important, actually, you know, traditional galleries, like such as Bitforms in New York and, and Unit in London, where I'm presenting a poem and I'm presenting, a, you know, a traditionally written, you know, pen and paper poem, but it's participating in a digital space, in a digital sphere on complete equal ground as any other work created there. And that's really exciting for poetry, Tim. I really think it's revolutionary. I think that, you know, more and more people are going to to enter the blockchain, more poets, and start playing around. And also, you know, the potential for collaborations with artists is immense. Um, the potential to learn new tools, to experiment, to play around. It's it's really just such ripe ground, such fertile ground for, for play and exploration. I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah, it is exciting. And just the way even in my limited experience with it, it encourages you to try new things because you have this whole, you know, I mean, a book is this size, the paper is roughly a rectangle that you can hold in your hands. And, you know, in your... 
and, and you just you're stuck in this box of thinking that that's how a poem looks when a poem is really our breath, you know, given life. And, and so there's so many ways you can present a poem outside of a printed page from Gutenberg 600 years ago or whatever. Um, and, and so so let's uh, take a look at Mammal One right now, which is a poem from Rattle. Um, and I'll, we'll show this as an example. Uh, for those just listening, you can find the, the YouTube version so you can see it or find it on object or, or the link to uh, the link to it through rattle.com on, on the poem there. Uh, but for those who are watching too, you can uh, watch and listen. So we'll take a look at this. And Anna, you're not going to be able to hear it. So just hang on and it'll be like 40 seconds of, of silence for you. But we'll, we'll share this right now. This is um, Mammal One. Mammal One. It is done. The child grows, silent as a new world. I must consider it when I eat. Eat more. Again, I am thirsty again. It is the baby already telling me what to do. Yeah, so that was Mammal One, a, you know, a 35-second poem, but, but beautifully presented. Um, and, and, you know, I used to not like video, like visual poems because of the way that they would sort of, they would just, a lot of times it would just be like text on a screen and then images and like little video that like show the text being acted out. And there was a way that it didn't add anything. And so it's been interesting to go to this, um, you know, through NFTs and see how people are experimenting with different ways you can use motion and sound to to incorporate into a poem. Um, you know, that's a very it's a traditional poem in your sort of bear style that you're sort of known for. Um, going to be in Steel Toe Books Collection Mammal um, next year, so it's a it's a basic poem, it's a, a traditional poem, um, but it's presented in this way through the visuals that move through the the, the video. And um, in the reading, too, into a, a distinct object that has a sort of a, a tone and a mood to it that, that adds to the poem, I think, when you watch the video. So, so how, do you, how do you approach that, a, a, the sort of wide range of options of how to present a poem? Is there a way that you've, um, I don't know, like, what are your thoughts going through that process of, of how do I take this poem and present it in the best way possible to the world that will be most memorable? I mean, it's infinite, right? Like, you could really go in any possible direction. Um, for this one, I used uh, P5.js JavaScript, a coding language, to create the visuals. So I created visuals that were evocative of planets, of zygotes, of bellies, of time, um, to convey pregnant, pregnant time, pregnant space, pregnant bodies. Um, and I, I wanted, I wanted it to be bear as well because it's a bear poem it's very stark and it's like a punch in the gut you know mm-hmm. um and so i wanted the visuals to also evoke that and um you know that's why i picked a black background and and very sort of um, modern clean font um and i presented this poem this video poem during art basel at an exhibition that i was invited to participate in and you know many people saw it many people engaged with it and then it was actually collected by an Italian photographer. Um, so it's it's interesting to see what the life of a published poem looks like versus what the potential life for a digital poem can be. And now it's found its way into Rattle Magazine. I mean, what an honor as as a you know it was published not you know as a black and white sort of text, but it was published as an artwork. Um, so that was also really exciting to see. 
and um and i have a feeling it'll continue its life will will continue and i think that if i had only published it traditionally and that's that and you know you literally close the book on it um its life would have been just so much quieter and lonelier mm -hmm. um how much do you know does the nft sort of space provide uh, feedback you know because you know, how, how much do you guide um, what you do by what actually works and what makes people interested in what sells? Like you mentioned selling this. Um, is that a way to, you know, because in the traditional publishing realm, it's like if an editor says it's good, then we'll publish it in our thing. And then that's the token that it's good. And you make your little list on your CV. And that's like the, the sense of quality and the feedback you get. But it's still this, um, you know, it's not the general public of readers that's determining that. It's this sort of in most cases in an, in an academic setting, you know, in, in have this certain aesthetic and look and the whole traditions behind what a poem is in the first place. Um, and then this presents it in front of an audience that can react by wanting to collect it. And so how much of that is, is determines where you go with the artwork and, and how do you, how do you navigate that? Because then there's also the risk of, um, you know, not letting your artistic self be expressed because you're trying to please people. So how do you, how do you navigate those two things? I don't know. I've been really kind of doing what I want, Tim. I have to be honest. Um, and I've been fortunate in that it's found an audience. Um, but I've really just been kind of doing what I want. I mean, I've been playing around with JavaScript. I'm, you know, very much uh, an amateur coder. I, I watch tutorials for things that I like, learn them, um, figure out how to play around with like the palettes and the sizes and the speeds and, you know, maybe the thickness or, or, or the volume of, of things, but I'm, I'm really just learning. I'm learning how to use AI um, as well to create visuals. I, I created a series of poems for a Spanish national newspaper, for example, that they wanted a collection using AI um, for Diario El País, I mean, Diario ABC <laughs> they, from Spain. Um, and I also did an AI um an, a, an AI visualized poem for Bitforms um, in, in New York. And fortunately, these works have found collectors. Um, I, I don't know. I, I guess, I guess that's a sign that people like them. Mm -hmm. um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. Um, let's take a look yeah. at another, another work too, because we talked about introducing um, poems uh, to new audiences and having, having, you know, people be excited about poetry that usually aren't. And one of the things I think is really cool is that poems in the public domain series, which, um, so you have a poem that, that is, you know, old enough to be in the public domain, and then all this marginalia appears. I'll, um, I'll see if I can uh, go to the beginning of this, and then we'll show this on the screen while we talk about it. So this is uh, what I have up right now is um, How Do I Love Thee, uh, Sonnet 43 by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And so as you can see, this, this sort of, as the poem appears um, in a video format, the... Um, I think it's a video format. I'm not sure actually what the format is, but but marginalized appearing. So there's notes. Um, you know, things are being highlighted, underlined. Things are starred as excellent lines. Um, you know, the thoughts. You know, a line to remember. Wonder if she wrote this for for um, for Browning and things like that are were written on here. And then the and then the text kind of floats up in the air as you can see uh, there and and disappears into a blank page until it sort of recycles over again and so it's a it's a way to show poems in, in, in a way that's that's um you know 
completely different than the way we think about it because it shows your the interaction that you have with a poem as the poem is appearing you know it, it becomes like a three-way interaction because you get the the original poem plus the uh the way you're adding to it and then subtracting eventually and then you're as a third party observing all that so um it's really neat uh, to do and, and what's the, been the response for that and, and how did you come up with it in the first place so this this series is a collaboration with a brilliant, brilliant coder um, who who created the algorithm that visualizes this this concept, and his name is Hieroglyphica. Um, and so the idea here was um, he he sent me sort of these um, evaporating visuals and said, "Hey, I came up with this algorithm. Um, what do you think of doing something with it?" And um, I had wanted to do a collection that represented readership because I feel like the moment of connection with a poem that is so deep that you want to actually write and intervene on the page is so powerful. And I feel like it's it is the art. That's the moment of art. Like that's the magic. That's what you want in your life. That that, that like lightning bolt. And I wanted to represent that visually. And so we had all this back and forth, and we came up with with this concept called Poems in the Public Domain, where we, we took a collection of 30 to begin with, and it's an ongoing series. And we designed 14 readers. Each reader has its own um, handwriting. Um, it's important that every single aspect is code-based, so there's no images sort of fed into the computer. It's all created via JavaScript, all the handwriting, all the all the poems, and they're actually inspired by the visuals of the 1950s um, editions of Poetry Magazine, sort of that very minimalistic style of Poetry Magazine. Um, and each reader has different pen colors to represent rereading, because we also think that the act of rereading a poem is very powerful. And then the poem fades, and you're kind of left with like this vestige of the poem, like this very sort of very rough um, remainder of, of the markings of it. And the poem reappears and a new reader intervenes the poem and then it disappears and a new one and a new one. And the animation can go on for hours. It's actually living in your browser. Um, and so you create this palimpsest of marginalia, of shared meaning, of shared meaning, of connection to text, to poetry which is really what remains, right? Because what we're writing, all of us, at one point, it's going to be in the public domain. So what really what we want is our work to be read. And this, this collection is an anthology that celebrates the role of the reader in maintaining poetry alive. If poems aren't read, then they fade, right? Who's going to read them? They're just all closed books. So we really wanted to... to represent that joy of reading and share it with with many and there's um there's a very few sort of rarities within the collections or very few um editions where actually one poem gives rise to another one um so for example we have homer gives rise to um the the uh, what's it called Virgil, Virgil's Aeneid um so that you know poems works that are in, in dialogue with each other Tim um evoke each other and call each other forth so most of the editions in this collection it's just the same poem over and over but we have a few really rare special ones where it's a sequence of different poems and they they, they narrate the intertextuality 
between between different poems um, through through history. Yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't realize how. I mean, it's really even cooler than I realized. I didn't realize it was all um, you know JavaScript. I mean, that's a lot. And, and where does the um, and, and that they cycle for so long? I guess I hadn't. You know, I knew there were a few, but I didn't know it was like that much. Where do the notes come from? Like, is it something you wrote them all? I hand wrote. I hand oh, wow. wrote every single annotation for every single reader for every single poem in the collection there are thousands of lines of code that went into this collection wow both written by by hieroglyphica and written by me so every single annotation from oh i need to buy eggs or you know this reminds me of my daughter or, or what you know I, I i wanted the annotations to be both intellectual academic and also super casual like inviting people to just just participate, you know, just, just relate to it. Um, and then we also came up with these like little hearts and little stars, little, um, coffee stains to, to mark the passage of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just, it's so cool to think of, you know, the other thing it reminds me of is the, you know, the, the old fashioned library cards, you know, we get to see all the people who have gone through the book and then that feel of connection, um, you know, to all the people who've held this in their hands and thought the same, you know, had human reactions to the book in the same way that, that we do. Uh, so it's a really cool uh, concept and a cool series. And, uh, and, and um, yeah, so let's, um, let's see. I think um, I should say if we have any questions from the audience, um, I'll, I'm monitoring on uh, Facebook and uh, YouTube, the chat window. So if anybody has any questions, it helps if you put, uh, you know, the big question in there so I can see that it's a question. Um, and uh, so Dick Westheimer, who was also in uh, the NFT poetry issue, he was experimenting with it and uh, ended up with a poem at the, in, the, in that section. He says, is there a place for white space page poetry in this digital world of NFT poetry? And so have you, have you come across any, you know, it, does it work to just have a simple text on a page? Is that something that we can do as, you know, NFT poets that, that get people interested still? Or is that, is that too sort of dull? I think there is. I think there is definitely space for it. But I think you need to, I mean, you know, it's not automatic to transact your poems just by putting them on the blockchain. You really need to share them thoughtfully for quite some time and engage with with, with the world of, of crypto Twitter or, or digital art so that there is already an interest in your work. But once you have that interest... Um, you know, I think it's totally possible. Like I would be very comfortable minting a, you know, normal textual poem um, and, and hoping that it finds a home, but it's almost like a statement, right? It almost becomes a statement to say an, an affirmation of value um, that I, I think is really important to do. Um, but I also think it's really important for people to first value and connect with you as an artist, as a poet in order for that to resonate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that brings up um, um, what you've doing, done with Alexandria Labs. And Katie Dozier, who um, is here all the time, um, did a book with Alexandria too. Um, and, and so that's a different way of publishing eBooks, where instead of you know, you know, eBooks being distributed through Amazon or however you would, you know, passing them around, they become collectible NFTs too. And so the book here was actually a book of um, uh, short stories. I think there's three short stories in that, if I'm right. And and so what they do is they they make them each collectible by having unique covers. Um, and so they they generate multiple covers for however many editions. I don't know if it's fifty or whatever they do. 
Um, but then you have, you know, so your unique ebook is a unique object, and that becomes collectible in the same way. Um, so, so what, tell us about your experience with that, and, and do you think that that's a way of, of moving forward with books? So, you know, jumping on uh, Dick Westheimer's question about the place for traditional poems, um, you know, ebooks are a way to do poetry traditionally, but make them portable and, and you know, useful in different ways. Um, but there's still, you know, you can publish poems like a book, and, and so this is a way to use NFTs to, to leverage and change the way we think about books. Uh, so, what's your experience with that um, in, in Alexandria Labs and what they're doing? I love Alexandria Labs, and I, I loved Katie's book. I collected it, um, and I think I think it's just it adds, right, Tim? Like you and I, when we were sort of preparing for this, there, I, I remember you mentioning it's just nice to think beyond the page, right? And I think it's nice to think beyond the page, beyond the MP4, beyond the JPEG. I mean, to think about poetry and writing and text living in as many ways as possible. And to publish an NFT book is just one more. And there are different audiences for each format. And I feel like it's connected me with a different different group of readers and also um, you know, allowed people to connect my work um, because maybe like my one of one poems are are priced, they're pricey, um, but but this work is available, you know, at, at a very affordable rate. It's it's like forty dollars for a one of one um, book because of the unique, unique covers, and um, but I also wanted the works to be available to read for free, right? Because we don't want to gate anything. So the works are available to read on the Alexandria's website for free. Um, but if you want to support my work and if you want to participate sort of in my journey, then you can also collect one for 0.035 ETH, which is, you know, roughly 40, 40 something dollars. Mm-hmm. You can also pay with credit cards. So it's like you can now buy a regular book. You can buy an, a video poem. You can buy one of these generative poems in the public domain if you want. Um, or you can get a, a collection of short stories or you can engage with all these works for free. Um, except for maybe the physical books. Um, but you can engage with all these works for free and enjoy them um, and share them if you want um, and hopefully, you know, connect with them. Um, so it's just, it's adding, right? It's you're, you're building this sort of realm of literature. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk about that, but let's read a little bit from um, from Trist. You had a, a slide. So there's a way that you publish this in which it's the it cycles as an NFT, through different sections of the book every hour i think you said it changes so i have the one of the hours up here um and um if i can find where i put it yeah here it is so it's up on the screen now if you want to want to read it for everybody sure 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 um so i will read you hold on a second let me get my um um let me get my my um the right time because we wanted to do two i am okay I'm going to read, it's a 24 hour, it's a story um, fragmented in 24 hours and it cycles forever as an NFT on a platform called Async Art. Every hour on the hour, a new uh, verse is shown, a new section. And so I'm going to read uh, 2 a.m. The film ends. Is it early in the morning or late in the night? My body can't tell. I want so much more but I want it to come quietly without killing me. I go on the internet to search up the actor. I read everything the internet offers. 
algorithms wager potential versus probable pathways to him. Is he a body who sleeps? My household sleeps. Does my editor sleep? I don't know if he has a wife. The actor has a wife. They met at Juilliard. They are private. They share a small son. Their home is close to mine. In Tehanu, one of the Earthsea books I didn't read to my kid, men are described as nuts, solid iterations of their own desire throughout. I am certain the actor is a kernel of salvation, certain that in his face lies something basic I might understand. At the same time, I recognize he's just another man, that his abdomen in real life remains unscarred. Solitude makes room for contradiction. Yeah, that was the 2 a.m. We actually had the slide for 5 a.m., so I pulled it down. Um, but you can see how, they, how they're set up there. Um, and, you know, every hour that changes. So it, it lives, um, is it like what a certain time zone and it actually is accurate for one time zone? It must be, right? I was recording the audiobook um, for Alexandria Labs, actually. Um, had, we haven't announced it yet. I'm so sorry. And I put up that 2 a.m. that I was just recording. <laughs> no, it's okay. No problem at all. I mean, we get to see the sense of it. And, and, you know, we get to listen. It's an audio podcast, too. But it's really, really just a, interesting just to think beyond the way that we usually think of books. Um, there's a common question people say and all the time, which is, um, why would anybody want to collect something they could just read for free? So what is your what is your response to that? Because it is something that, you know, as a reaction, I mean, there, there are less kind reactions than that, but it is a valid question. It's a totally valid question. And, you know, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't want to collect something that you can read for free. Or maybe you want to support writers. Or maybe you believe that, um, you know, someone someone's work is going to be valuable. Maybe it's an investment. Um, in the future, you know, this is the very early days of, of blockchain poetry and to collect it now is really to be at the forefront of what I'm sure is only going to get more and more, you know, voluminous and more important and significant and, and valuable. So I think, you know, if you believe in poetry, um, you know, which if you're watching this podcast, you probably are listening. Um, you know, I, I believe that this is going to prove revolutionary for poets, give us new opportunities to transact our verse and participate in ways that we haven't been able to. Um, so if, if you believe in this, then then you might want to support it and um, and be a part of, of the early days. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, we had another question uh, you know, from Nate Jacob. Um, he says, I may have experienced a bit of whiplash in the last two weeks witnessing the embrace of AI by NFT poets. Is the use of AI for creation a subversion or a perversion? Um, and so, you know, AI has a lot of, there's a lot of negatives that come with AI. I mean, it's, it's very disruptive technology. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of ways that, especially for English teachers and, and you know, teachers in general, it's just ruining everything. Um, is there, a, and, and then there's the whole issue of plagiarism and, and whether or not it's, you know, is it just a form of like couch plagiarism is, a, is something that comes up as a, as a very real possibility. So, so what are your thoughts? Is there a good side to AI and, and how do you keep the, the guardrails on that? So people are using it for good and, and not just evil. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a really challenging question, right? One that um, I, I, I think about as well. Um, you know, I, 
I personally love writing so much myself and I need it so badly in my life that I, I write without, I mean, I, I don't write with AI. Mm -hmm. I write for, I write like, cause I need it, like my chest needs it, you know? Um, and so I think that for writers who, who feel this very, very strongly, um, it, it's more a question of, of sort of the practical uses of AI. And I think that there could be really practical and wonderful uses in life, you know, for copywriting. Um, I've even seen curators using it for curatorial statements um, where it's, it's really helpful and not disruptive, you know? Um, and I think that we're, we're not very good at keeping a lid on technology. So it really is important to stop thinking of it as a threat um, because it's here, it's coming, it's only going to expand and get better and more powerful. So by thinking of it as a threat, we're not going to be um, thinking of ways to to use it creatively and for our favor and for our growth. So instead of putting energy into, you know, pushing it back, the energy should be in putting it forward. And how can we embrace it in ways that make our life better? I recently presented on my work at my son's school um, and I showed them what could be done with text to image generation with AI. And the teachers were more amazed than the students. The teachers had never seen it before. And they were really excited about ways to use it and incorporate it into their classrooms. Um, so I think that there's, there's always opportunities um, for people who, who are open to, to exploring new technologies. Yeah, yeah, really well said. Um, and we're going to close out in an unusual way, but by having a, another poem place. So you won't have to read this last one. We're going to do um, soup prayer, and and I and I'm going to ask. Um, well, let's play this, um, and and then we'll talk about it a little bit after we play it, and that'll be the, the last poem we have uh, from Anna today. This is a soup prayer. Should I get a good size too? That's better. Okay, here we go. We'll, we'll give it a listen. Soup prayer. Dear God, please remove my mother, not from the world, of course, just from my mind. Keep her far from my blithe breakfast light. She is the drain, I am the broth. Whisk me in my blanket pot. Amen. Yeah, so that was Soup Prayer, again, by Anna Maria Caballero. And, and Anna, for a closing question, um, what would you say, advice to anybody who's interested in this, but it feels too intimidating? Was there a time when it was intimidating to you? And, and how do you, how, what is your advice for somebody who wants to approach this um, type of, you know, finding new ways to share their poems? Because um, everybody has poems, and we're really looking for new ways to share them. Um, so, so what is your advice to somebody looking out and trying it for the first time? Just dive in, honestly. Don't think about it too much. Don't don't waste energy, like I said, you know, pushing it back or 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 thinking there's a right way in. There's no right way in. Just dive in. Um, follow the verse verse. Um, you know, you can follow a, a few of the poets that you've mentioned today, Katie Dozier, and you run a fantastic poetry space. Um, I think it's very very helpful. Uh, the verse verse also is launching a community anthology where we're inviting people to submit poems and mint them for the first time, many of them. Um, you know, you can follow me as well and sort of see what we're up to. And um, 
and just play around. I mean, if, if you have also friends who are artists, um, maybe you can collaborate. It's fun to collaborate. And then there's two people sort of sharing the work and figuring things out together. So that's always, um, you know, fun. Um, just go for it. You know, there's there's lots of articles too out now about, you know, how to make your first poem. There's every day there's more and more information and the UX UI is also starting to improve, you know, gradually. Um, but I think, you know, I really recommend starting with Tezos, which is uh, a really um, sort of affordable blockchain where there's no transaction fees. Um, so Tezos is a good place to start. And then Object dot com is um the main platform on tezos yeah and that's the one you know most of the poets in our issue are using it's because of those low gas fees it, and it's made for to be environmentally friendly too which is what um you know a lot of people are worried about another thing that comes up sometimes is how you know energy intensive um those uh, proof of uh, work bitcoin or you know things like bitcoin are to actually run on computers um, but this is just a tiny fraction of that. So the cost is passed on. And for when, you know, poets being poetry being lower priced, it makes a lot more sense to have lower fee transactions uh, for the artwork, too. But anyway, yeah, great advice, Anna. It's just been great talking to you. Just it's so much fun to think of all the possibilities, you know, moving forward that we can do as poets to get poetry in front of new audiences and and find just new ways to to find a life um, within poetry, because the the old ways of doing things. Um, you know, they've never really worked well and, and they're working less and less well over time. So it's great to find something new that we can explore. Well, I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy to share my book that, um, you know, I published um, with so much love and I'm so happy that it's out in the world. Thank you for sharing my book and then also my digital work. It's not every space where I get to talk about both sides of my practice. So I really thank you, Tim. Yeah. Well, thanks so much and keep up the great work. <laughs> okay yeah so that was anna maria caballero once again her new book is appetite mall which you can find at her website which is on anna maria caballero.com that's anna maria and then caballero if you don't know how to spell it it's c-a-b-a-l-l-e-r-o.com so check out uh, that for more of her work uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff as we were talking about you know it's fun to share poetry and we should be sharing our poetry widely just put it all out there anna maria does and so her website is full of NFTs and video poems. It was hard to even figure out what to share because there are so many possibilities. So just go to that website. It's also in the show notes, most places you're listening to this. And, uh, and, and look at all the different ways uh, that, that she's packaging and, and finding ways to, to you know, plate poems. So um, really great to see. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our open lines. And the open lines is going to work like it always does. Um, first thing you want to do is email a poem. Anything you want to share to open mic, that's openmic at rattle.com. And, um, and then join us on the Zoom link. So we want to, you want to send us the poem though first, whatever poem you want to share, so I can show it on the screen like I've been showing Anna's poems. Uh, and then join the Zoom link, and I will post it into the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. Pin them to the top if you'd like to join. But if you'd like to just sit tight where you are and enjoy the poetry... Um, that's the best way to do it is to stay right where you are, either on Facebook or YouTube, because then you get to see it. So don't go to the Zoom unless you want to share poems. But if you want to share poems, hop over to the Zoom. I'm going to take a quick break, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Um, before we get into the main uh, open lines, I have an exciting announcement to make. We're going to be changing the way starting next week uh, that we do... Uh, the open lines, and we're going to start publishing um, one of the poems every month. It's going to be a, a open mic, um, a prompt poem of the month. And so how we're going to do that is instead of submitting your poems to 
um, through the email, which is a little cumbersome. We're going to go straight to submittable, and we're going to have a submittable category for the open mic poems uh, from now on, or for the prompt poems, I should say, if you're, if you're worried about the prompt every week. Um, and so you can submit there. And then once a month, like we do with the Ekphrastic Challenge, we'll pick the best prompt poem of the month. And we're going to have uh, Katie Dozier be the guest editor of that because Katie isn't allowed to submit poems to rattle. And so it gives her something to do, even though she participates every week. So, um, Katie, can you join us right now and tell us a little bit about what we're going to be doing? Hey, Katie, I'm good. It's good to see you. Good. And so so this is something we, we've actually been talking about this for a while because um, I've been debating whether or not to it's like publish a poem every week or something. Because what I want to do is encourage more people to participate in this really fun thing. I mean, it's my favorite thing. I love that we get to publish, you know, get to write a new poem every week and then and then share it and have a place for it. It just makes writing poetry so much more fun. Um, and, and so I wanted to have something to do and I couldn't really figure out what, so we were talking about it and we decided to, um, you know, once a month have a poem. Um, and so tell us what you're, what you're thinking about it. Well, first of all, I think that the prompt poems and the open line poems are just so good. And in the time, I guess I've been, um, listening to the Rattlecast for about a year, very, very diligently, and they just get, keep getting better and better. I think the prompt poems are amazing. And I hear so many that I'm like, oh, that should, that deserves to be published. That should be published. So I'm really glad that you're deciding to go ahead and do some of that. Um, and I love writing prompts. So it'll be really fun to get to pick the prompts. Too. Yeah. For people that don't follow Katie or aren't on Twitter, uh, she does something where every time she flies in a plane, she asks for prompts. And then she writes like 12 poems on the plane for those prompts. <laughs> so she's kind of the, the king of prompts. And uh, so it's perfect to have that as a series editor. So, so once a month, she'll go through and pick that poem, and then it won't be any extra work for me, but we'll get to share more poems, too, which is a really wonderful thing, I think. Um, and so, yeah, and so, so this week's prompt, maybe you should, since you're already on the line, you should share yours first. Did you send it? Yeah, you sent one in. So this week's I prompt, <laughs> yeah, it was to write a poem in dialogue with an alter ego. And um, Yeah. Yeah, and so... Uh, so I have your prompt poem here. So, and you did something complicated. <laughs> Tell us what you did with your, your prompt poem. Well, first, as Anna Maria was talking about in that wonderful interview, which I love, I'm such a fan of her work. I've collected many of her pieces and she's one of the people that made me feel like maybe I could fit in in NFT poetry without being somebody who does things with AI. Uh, but I'm trying to do something this week with this prompt in the name of Sasha Styles and wanted to, so Sasha obviously talked a lot about training, you know, technology and writing like her. I decided to try to, in a very, very short amount of time, train chat GPT to write like the opposite of me. Um, and so I went ahead and input like about a hundred of my poems into chat GPT four, and then asked it to write like the opposite of me. And then I decided to further take a poem that I had been working on and input it line by line and ask it to write the opposite of me. So I have a poem that has lines from me and then lines from chat GPT that are supposed to be the opposite of what I input into it. Well, that sounds really interesting. And it is. And that's the kind of thing that Sasha has been doing. So it's interesting to see you jump on board and try it yourself. Do you want to, why don't you go ahead and read it? Okay. I need a word. I relinquish a silence for the shape of something empty against the form of everything filled the pushed-in pillow where once lay your crown, the stretched-out shadow where never stood your feet, the volume of childhood, now a stepped-on box, the silence of maturity, forever an untouched sphere, ribbon curls strewn along the checkerboard linoleum, rigid lines set in the expansive sand, all these cold shapes, 
still a little warm, each fervid form now growing steadily cold, the opposite of me, the replica of you. Yeah, and so it's got Katie Dozier and Chat GPT. <laughs> really fascinating. How how difficult was it? How much time did it take to to train a, a you know Chat GPT to be the anti you? And then like how much work went into that? Well, it was lucky. I mean, it's pretty amazing. You can just you know when you have like a billion poems, you can just copy and paste and put them in there. And then you ask, I asked it to summarize like what my writing was like. And it is funny because you feel like a little bit like, oh, what's ChatGPT? Think of my poems. You know, it's a little funny with that. Um, but then saying what the opposite of it was, and it was like talking about how it needed to be more vague to be the opposite of me. So that made me feel like maybe my poems in general are on a good track. <laughs> the opposite, because this is obviously way more abstract than things that I that I normally write. But what I thought was interesting was when I input the last line, the opposite of me, it really like it it had to think for a while, whereas with everything else, it just set it out. But the replica of you, I thought was a really interesting line, actually, that it came yeah, up with. So, so it's fun. Too. Yeah, yeah, it definitely yeah. was. Really fascinating to see that play out. And um, I'm looking forward to the new, you know, being able to publish some of these because there are great poems. We actually have published some <laughs> from the prompts. We have a poem. I just put the, um, um, the fall issue to the printer. And it has a Brian O'Sullivan poem, uh, which was one of the oh. prompts. It was uh, a Sestina that he wrote. If anybody wants to go back and find that, or you can wait for the fall issue to come out. And there have been some others, too, as, uh, as time has gone on. I think um, Angela Gartner read the one in uh, the summer issue, and that ended up in Rattle. So it's, um, you know, it's interesting to have, it's going to be great to have this. And, and the reason why we wanted to do it just once a month is because I mm-hmm. want to keep the same positive vibe. And I wanted to feel competitive, like who's got the best poem this right. week. But once a month, you know, a, a tip of the hat to the to the most interesting yeah. one that came out of these prompts is going to be really fun. And that encourage people to participate, too, because we have, um, you know, we have a great group of like 30 people that do this. But uh, it'd be so much, you know, fun. To, it's so much fun that we want to encourage more people to participate. And um, and a bunch of people, too, I should say, they keep emailing me all the time. Like, where do I submit my prompt poems? And I'm like, no, you go on the Rattlecast. And so now <laughs> I don't have to explain that. They can just submit them if they don't, you know, they yeah. can't make this time and more can participate. And, so I think it's a good thing all around. Yeah. And I think we should say as many times as you want, as many prompt poems as you want, you can enter. That's true. Exactly. Because Katie's, <laughs> Katie's reading, so it's not going to take up my time. <laughs> If I could submit, I would submit a hundred a week. No, now I'm really just dating people. <laughs> I think you would. I think you would. I've seen your spreadsheet. I think I would if I could submit. Yeah, I mm-hmm. would. But thanks. I think it's going to be really fun. I'm really excited to see what everyone writes because I love listening to the, everybody's open line poems every week anyway. So it's going to be really fun. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks so much for offering to do that. It's really nice of you. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So thanks, Katie. Thanks. Yep. Thank you. Right. So, yeah. So I haven't opened it up yet. But if you go to Submittable tomorrow, you'll see the field for uh, and it's starting with the next. So what I'll do is I'll list every time we do a, a prompt, um, you know, a new prompt for the show, I'll add it to the Submittable page and then I'll delete them at the end of the month and we'll start with a new prompt. So that'll be, that'll be like the cutoff. And uh, so that's how it's going to work. We've been thinking about it for a while and I think that's the best way to go. Um, so anyway, that was Katie Dozier's prompt poem. I need a word. I relinquish a silence. Um, and then... We'll go to mine, which we haven't read yet. Mine was written this afternoon, and um, I did not use AI. I used my imagination. <laughs> and um, I think the results were not as interesting as the AI poem, but that's life, I guess. Here we go with um, Interview with Myself as the Field Mouse. And this was the Field Mouse uh, that I caught last night. But anyway, Interview with Myself as the Field Mouse. Are there more of you? More moons, more stars, more stuff than a nose can nose. 
What's more to life than more of life? How many more under the house? But only one with weight to pull the tides, only one to bring the bright from which we hide. Is it true you can laugh? We lose to laugh, we laugh to lose. Is there any other choice than choice to choose? Was it quick at the end? The butter was sweet, the hunger sweeter. And are there more? Oh, right, tonight, tonight. That is my interview with myself as the field mouse. And it's true, I mean, we get some mouse, you know, at this time of year, it hasn't rained in uh, Southern California in about three months. They're all desperate for water. And I just don't, I mean, you know, there's mouse droppings all over there, you know, down the decks and everything. And I just, we can't do it. And I don't want them to start getting in. So um, I had to put out some traps, humane traps though. Um, But anyway, that was me looking at the mouse and I I, I feel awful every time, but you got to do it. You know, there's not enough predators for them. Maybe I should get a cat. I don't really want a pet. (laughs) So anyway, that was my prompt poem for this week. Let's see uh, what everybody else has. Audrey Friedman is the first in line. Okay. Hey, Audrey, how you doing? Hi, terrific. I love these prompts. You know I do. I know you do. uh, Found out that one this morning has been um, put up on Drifting Sands. Oh, that's uh, great. Congratulations. Hi, uh, Bun. Uh-huh. So I was thrilled that that was the Quora prompt. Uh-huh. Oh, great. Yeah, I like that prompt. Poem, that was a lot of the fun. The poem was strange. Everything was strange. <laughs> it was good. Um, okay, so here's my response inspired by your prompt. Old bags. You called her the old bag. I called her grandma. Sure, her leathery skin looked weathered after so many summers at Rockaway Beach, but I still didn't understand why you gave her that nickname. You warned me not to call her that to her face, and I listened as I always did. Years later, you told me that she died. She was in her 90s. You told me to stay home with my kids no need to go to the funeral. Again, I listened and cozied up with my husband and two toddlers, somewhat relieved not to take, make the trip from Rhode Island to Brooklyn, but still I was conflicted. This was my gentle father's mother. Being there would be more for him than for the, than for the grandmother whom I barely knew, but daddy liked me was ordered not to grieve. Wind sucks up brown bags, but cyclones are recursive. Assault, retreat, replay. Oh, that was great. Yeah, I love the hyphen form. It just works so well. And a really great use of it there. Thanks for sharing that, Audrey. Oh, you're welcome. That was... uh... Audrey Friedman with Old Bags, a uh, really good high bend. And, and, oh, congratulations, I meant to say, too, on the uh, publication of the other poem. I, I don't know if I said that before or not, but but definitely yes. very happy to hear it. That's really cool. And um, thank you. I listened to the poetry space uh, a bit late, and your recommendation and Katie's for uh, that handbook about writing high bun um, just came in the mail today, so I will be a happy camper oh, this week. Cool. Yeah, that's um, my arm's not quite long enough to reach it, but Roberta Beery, who's been on before mm-hmm. um, as a guest on the Rattlecast, and uh, Lou Watts, who's my favorite Hyben poet, probably experiments a lot. 
um, and another young, I can't remember his name, the third person, but I can't reach. But um, but that is uh, who put out this new book, um, Hyben, a writer's guide. And so if anybody's interested in Hyben, that's a great thing to check out. So yeah, definitely. Thanks for that plug. It's a good a good book to look at. Yeah. Have a good evening. Yeah, you too. And um, and that's a good segue too, because I, I meant to mention um, when Katie was here up online. Well, we'll pull her back up again. I don't think, but she. Um, the poetry space this week, we're going to be doing rejection, where we talk about rejection letters, how they feel behind the scenes, the way they work, um, your rejection experiences. And once again, the poetry space is a Twitter space, so we kind of sit around and, and talk about all things poetry, which is really fun for me because I don't have, like, in other than Katie, um, in my real life, I don't have any poetry friends. All my friends are sports people, really, and like and like engineers, and so. Um, so it's, it's just so fun to sit around and just talk about a poetry topic for an hour. And that's what we do over on Twitter. And then it becomes a podcast too. Um, and Katie kind of hosts that and I join as a co-host. Um, but anyway, that's a lot of fun. So if anyone wants to check it out, you can find the poetry space, uh, just like you find this podcast too on Amazon music or, or Spotify or whatever. Let's go next to, um, Nivedita Karthik. Cause I know she probably has to go to work soon. So I'm glad we get to see her live. Hey, Nivy. Are you there? Nivedita? Hey. Um, Hello. Oh, we lost. Oh, there you are. You kind of cut out a little bit. You're back. Hey, Nivi, how you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. It's great to see. You. I'm glad you could get up uh, early enough um, to, to <laughs> jump on before work. It's really cool to have you. Uh, I hurriedly wrote a prompt poem last night. Oh, that's great. In under 15 minutes. So <laughs> I just thought I wrote it and it is well shared before I leave. It's perfect. Yeah, let's if go ahead and possible. do it. Yeah. Okay, great. So it's called Walk. I'm walking down this path looking for something. Come on, it takes you nowhere and you know that. I see the signs everywhere guiding me. Yes, guiding you away from here, away from this path. But I'm following the yellow brick road. It's supposed to take me home. Yes, it will, but only if you know what home is. So I walk along here till I find it. I know it when I see it. You didn't see the huge do not enter sign right before your eyes. Warnings are there to stop people from greatness or perhaps to stop fools from certain death. Come now, don't exaggerate so. I'm fine and so will you be. I don't know about you, but I'll be fine cause Oh, that's great. Excellent alter ego <laughs> conversation. Thanks for sharing that, Nivy. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. It was lovely being back here after a long time. Yeah, and definitely. great show as always. Yeah, everybody I loves catch. to see it. It's oh, great to cool. great you could catch it. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you, Tim. Yep. Bye bye. Have yeah. a lovely evening. Yeah, have a good day. The Nivy the Karthik, um, of course, with uh, walk. Next in line is uh, Laura Berg. Hi, Tim. Hello, um, Laura. How you doing? Fine. I tried for a long time to have a dialogue with Emma Peel, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, I came up with the with a little lyric poem that's not dialogue, but she's there. Okay, mm. so um, it's called Shadow Work. Did you send it to me? Because I'm not seeing it. Oh, I did. Did I address it? Did mm. I address it right? Oh. Oh, I think you said. Okay, I found it. It's my personal email. That's fine too. Right. So um, okay. okay, so Shadow Work. Yeah, very interesting. Shadow Works. What did I watch? My then world of snow, 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 and shadow puppets of flicker in a static box. I'd prick a pinky if I looked up from darning socks to see a witch wife twitch her nose, 
Cowboy bros, gentle palominos, the star captain crews his crew by Alpha Centauri. Then Emma Peel in her catsuit would shimmy up a tower of glass and steel, cock her Beretta jet fire, and I'd drop my stitching cold. Oh, that's great. Great music in that. And I didn't know who Emma Peel was, but now I think oh. I do. So thanks for sharing that, too. Yeah. She was the, she was the, the James Bond for, for girls when mm-hmm. I was a kid on, on TV. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, great poem. I really, I did love that. The sounds of that were just wonderful. Thanks for sharing it, Laura. Yeah, that was Laura Berg with Shadow Work. And I should say, too, I, I, I meant to also add that, um, um, you know, this is always going to be an open mic. So anybody wants to hear anything, you don't have to be uh, prompt poems. It's just that one prompt poem category on uh, Submittable we're going to add. Uh, but still, any poems about current events, any uh, things that were published recently, you can share anything you want. It's an open mic. So um, let's go to Dick Westheimer next and see what he's got for us. Hello, Dick. Hey, Tim. Hey, great to see um, you. It was good to see you. It was a wonderful interview. I loved the um, the emphasis on abundance, mm-hmm. which is sort of the first time I've heard that associated with uh, so closely with NFT poetry. I really liked. Yeah, um, it's interesting because that, that's what I recognized early with it, but I haven't figured out how to explain it, you know? And so explaining yeah. it that way makes a lot, I think it's a lot clearer. Than, than other ways I tried to, because um, that's really what it is. It's just, you can, you, you know, if, if something is based on collectability, then it's fine to share it, you know, in, in the digital world, that's the way that it works, you know, and the more people share it, the more collectible it becomes. And so um, there's really no limit on, on, you know, there's no reason to hold anything back, which I think is just such a great thing for poetry. Yeah, well, one of the things it made me think of is that no matter how you share your poetry, it requires something other than being a poet. Yeah, that's true. So, so if you're um, a page poet, and you know you have to do, play the submitting game. If you're an NFT poet, you have to learn how to be social in the NFT world, which mm-hmm. is a different skill than being social in the Facebook world. And so, each of them requires for distribution mm-hmm. a skill other than being a poet, and that that's. That's uh, something that's, I guess you're going to deal with it a little bit on Thursday also with we're talking about rejection. Yeah, that's part two. Uh, it's an interesting point that I meant to talk about with Sasha Styles last, you know, we just don't get so much little time, but she works in marketing and, and you know, some kind of brand, I can't remember what exactly the title is, but, um, but that, so she has a lot of skill in that field and it, you know, to promote yourself as an artist is something that really every artist has to do. And, you know, we can fall back on hoping to win an award, which helps a lot. But, um, but you know, there's other ways to do it, too. And that's a real skill to learn. So uh, for anybody, but especially needed in, in this sort of new era or new area, which there's not the infrastructure built up already. Well, and, and in the U.S. market, market right? Yeah, you know, other yeah. places in the world, it, you know, poetry is distributed in, in distributed. Again, there's a marketplace term in other ways. Speaking of marketplace, I do have a prompt poem oh, okay and uh, this was you know to write in dialogue is 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 a challenge so um, i have no idea whether i pulled this off i too wrote it an hour before rattle kiss <laughs> so so i'm hearing it for the first hearing it for the first time okay. not coming out of my mouth excellent yeah 
So this is called The Wealth Consultant and the Poet Confer About Asset Management. We must decide how to invest these assets, these darlings I suggest we pull from your poem. But they sing with the music of kings, their images tinged gold, rich with rhyme and assonance and generous verbs. Fine, we'll leave them in, but they are not accruing benefit here and would work better and not so taxing in a poetry IRA. Okay, okay, you are right, and yes, the poem is tighter and will pay dividends now deposited in the pages of some fine journal. Great. Now what about these overwrought metaphors? We should assign them a trustee, set up an account for the benefit of future poems. Oh, whoa, I think I am going to give it all to a cause. I long to be poor so my moral choices weigh on me, so I can write poems about affliction and how my life benefits the verseless. I have a better idea. Take a walk, go down to the creek and note how the water is clear today, the stepping stones soft with moss. Take off your shoes and sit on the bank and watch the heron preen. I am already there and hear that red tail squawking his way to find prey. And there by the stream, a poem. It speaks to me and I am, says, Hell is a scam. Don't buy from a man who is selling you pain. I like that. Maybe your first thought is best. Maybe you should teach me to listen more closely to how consonants hear each other chatter, how money talks in riddles as beguiling as myth, how magic is metaphor, is magic, is old as ode, how ode is the coin we trade but cannot spend. So I will keep the IRA, the trust account, and earn interest that will feed my need for stuff. I will invest in the future so I can eat and live free from need and write about something besides suffering. Sign here. Your name is as good as your verse, which is to say, worth its weight in words, which is to say, as good as your last poem. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for sharing that. The Wealth Consultant and the Poet Confer about Asset Management. And um, I almost, I couldn't help but see like, a, um, you know, that angel and the devil on each shoulder. <laughs> you were reading. Yeah. It's kind of, well, yeah. and then they, then they got conflated mid poem. Mm -hmm. the, the asset manager got poetic and the poet got, got uh, utilitarian. So yeah, yeah, very fun. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that, Dick. And I, yeah, I love too, that I've uh, taken that walk down to the creek too. Thanks again for having us to your farm. It's nice to, uh, you've seen, you've seen the heron. I have. Talk to you soon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Dick. Bye. It was Dick Westheimer with uh, the wealth consultant and the poet confer about asset management. And next up, we'll go to Mike Bales. Good interview. I like poems that speak to causes about the epilepsy. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, I did that with all the subject of Alzheimer's with one of my books. I've, I've and a close friend from Milwaukee, I grown grouse that I never quite became a social worker. And a friend said, well, you help people with your books. Um, this poem's a little long. Sometimes I, my frame of mind kind of alternates between like, as I am now, mm -hmm. uh, semi-retired or like me during my college days. Um, so this is a dialogue between me now and me in my college days. The Me and my college days passages are the ones that are in italics. Mm -hmm. It's a little long here. 
Yeah, don't worry about it. It's not too long, and we got we have room this week, so it's a good week for it. Dialogue with my younger self. Sunlight pokes through the window of quiet room. The morning speaks silence, and my car is parked in a broken street. Restless spirits spoke along county roads, but in my heart the university campus was never far away, and I drove and I drove to the sun, chasing shadows that tomorrow would never come. I'm happy and sad but proud of the life I've known, and in my heart I live many lives. And while a voice talks about basic needs, shelter, food, find more hours at work to pay for idle dreams. This you must know, that when I drive for something, when I drove from something, I was driving to something new, to the herd of failed relationships freshman year to the dreams of finding someone else who wanted me as much as I wanted her. A love song played on the radio, and I held onto the steering wheel while the odometer counted miles. And in my heart, I was always driving. Now I say numbers matter, the amount of rent, the unpaid bills, yet now how they wait while I lose myself in lines of verse. As a sparrow flies past the window, while a buzzer in the dryer says my laundry is done. I was a man. I was a child while my father put me through college and paid for the dreams I sought. While life all around me stirred, I danced to the songs of life even before I knew the words. The air is still on a day in July, a record hot day forecasted as the world around me rises and falls. I think of loves old and new, and how conversations never die, but only fade. I was dreaming my life in uncertain terms, shaped by dreams and, a and aspirations, the litany of classes to find a career, to become a therapist, like the ones who helped me, me freshman year, and how I shared visions with an artist going through a divorce, of how time and time I kept going back to her for shared dreams, whispered aspirations of what each of us could be. I live a layered life. It wraps its arms around me, and through the years, and a voice inside says to embrace myself in, the, in this quest for life and love. I am becoming more and more the vision of who I am, but portraits painted of my past lives rest in shadows of a quiet room. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Love that thanks. ending, and uh, you can really hear the two uh, two sides in time going back and forth. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks. I write dialogue for my short stories. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah, very good. Yeah, that was Mike Bales with uh, dialogue with my younger self. Let's go next to Bishwajit Mishra. See what he's got for us today. Hi, Tim. Hey, Bishwajit. Good, good to see you. <laughs> good to see you too, and. Thank you for um, deciding on the Trump poem at least once in a month. And trust me, it had crossed my mind once because I'm a little selfish, but uh, I think it's like, as you put in your, I think it was some time back on that, uh, I think it was Substack. Mm -hmm. You wrote about, you know, sharing a poem as though it's considered deflowering a poem or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. It is. And I, I think that's <laughs> I think, completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. So I was thinking, no, there's another uh, comparative situation, you know, like in, in India, especially in um, 
uh, outside temples. In some temples, mm -hmm. people shave their hair. It's like a, they have taken a vow. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's a famous temple in my state where I grew up. So people will go and line up, and mm -hmm. they're just short as a barber's. And they're, they're also competing with each other. So what do they do? They'll make you see. Them. Come on, come on, come on. Sit down. And they'll just do a little bit of it uh -huh. and go to the next one. So you're touched. Nobody <laughs> can take you. <laughs> so I was thinking, you read a poem here, and then you're done. You're like that barbarous, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I um, you know, every poem I've written, I should, you know, in the last uh, <laughs> four years has been for that. And I've published a whole bunch of them, so um, no one's ever comp complained. And every time I've been like, "Oh, I, I, you know, read it on the, I read this on the Rattlecast, uh, you know, the day it was written," uh, nobody's ever said, "Oh, never mind, we can't publish that." So I think there's a lot of um, just uh, mythology going on that people actually care about you know, this kind of thing when they don't. You know, it was the same thing. There were even people when he had an open mic. Um, at the uh, bookstore that we used to have for years before the Rattlecast, people would be like, well, am I allowed to publish this after I've read it at the open mic? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm reading this, I'm making this public. And um, and, and I don't know, I just think it's just a, such an antiquated way of thinking about things. I don't think anybody actually does. I, I mean, I've never heard anybody, um, you know, not be able to publish a poem that's been read here and or on the Critique of the Week. A lot of times, you know, those poems, uh, you know, we go through a poem, it's up on the screen, we talk about it, they edit it some, and then they go publish it somewhere, and it's still up on the, you know, the original draft, and um, I don't know, but maybe I'm just too much of a rebel that I don't care. <laughs> but I just... Oh, that's true. I mean, that's true. I, I, take, I mean, uh, all said and done, this is much more fun to read live. It really is. It really I, is. Yeah, no pressure. You read. And who mm -hmm. are you reading to? Most of them are people already filtered with people who have interest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the best attention I can get. Right? It may be a lousy point. It's it? true. But, but, you know, I mean, I'm a, you know, in the Dungeons and Dragons squares, I'm chaotic good. <laughs> and um, if it's a bad law, I'm not going to follow it. And so, you yeah. know, whatever. <laughs> but anyway, what do you have to share with us today, Bishop? Uh, it's, I, I wrote the prompt form, but I wrote it myself. I don't, I didn't use any AI. Okay. I, I'm just learning about it from, all this uh, yeah me too it's too much for I'm me too yeah yeah i'm gonna try it out uh it's called zero decibel do you have it yep go ahead okay knock knock who's there it's my house i'm asking your tenancy laws don't work here my friend what do you mean you can ask anyone oh i can say the same and the verdict will be the same just the head for your tail with dollars. Check with Socrates. You're a parasite who can only come after I'm bored with a name. And I work for it. Yes, yes. But is your shadow even yours? You need a sun to see it. So think who is born of whom. But don't think of me like a mother either, because I won't let you get away as easily. I see everything. What do you do? I see that and what you don't. Look out. What do you see? You mean the backyard? The grass? It's getting greener. Last night's shower must have helped. No. You see green and I see grass. Color is the threshold of your sight, but you make, a, make it a wall. I am real and I think, therefore I am. I don't. I just am. 
okay, let's be practical, make a deal. You work after my shift. Sure, I would love to, if I could get that break. It's neither you nor I, just the breadth of the air. Uh, beautiful dialogue poem there, zero decibel. Thank you. Um, thanks so much, Bishop. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Good night. Good night. Yeah, Bishop Mishra with zero decibel. Um, and uh, last but not least on the Zoom is uh, Julian Matthews. Hey, Julian. Hi, Tim. Yeah, great to see you. Yeah. So uh, I have two poems. Should I read just one of them? No, or? feel free. I mean, we have. Uh, it's a little early for the end of the open line, so feel free. Yeah. So the first one is called "Explaining Poetry to a Nine-Year-Old." Mm, this is. I should hear. I you know got some some nine-year-olds around. <laughs> Curious what they uh, what they'll think of it. Go ahead. Poems are boring, you say. It puts me to sleep. Each of us is a poet, I say, even if you don't know it. Look at the moon. You could say the moon is a bright yellow balloon. But, you say, it only reflects light, makes none of its own. The moon is not a balloon because it's airless and has no strings attached. Maybe that is why I say. It is so consistent and why it will outlast humanity. It influences, but not in the way influences do. It knows when to shine and when to disappear. And it's just near enough to affect us, but not get too close to spin us out of orbit. So too poetry. But the moon has a dark side, you say, which it never shows us. Yeah, I say. We all have a dark side, and most people don't care to see it. It's only when it's on full display that we lose it. Some of us may empathize when you show it. Some of us may turn away. Dark sides matter. But it's your own private business, like the moon. Keep it to yourself. I get you, you say. But you write a lot of sad stuff in your poems. I do, I say. The sad stuff may come from my dark side, but it's art, and all art is poetry, and all poetry is a means to connect to our humanity, to life, to reflect the light in all of us. So the moon, you say, is a lot like us? Yeah, I say. I love the moon, you say. I love the moon too, I say. There, did you see what we just did? We, you and me, just wrote a poem. And it didn't put us to sleep, and it wasn't boring. Now go write another. Can it be about the sun, you ask? Yes, I be. That's a good place to start. Wow, that's excellent. Excellent reading, as always, Julian. And I love that line, you know, everyone has a dark side. We all have a dark side. And uh, so true. What a great, you know, metaphor there. And uh, I can't think of poems that have done that. You know, people complain about poems about the moon. But they never talk about the dark side in the poem. That's really fascinating. So thanks for sharing that. And then you have another one, too. Um, what's this? Thank you. Um, conversations about seeds. Oh, interesting. So another, uh, so two prompt poems, double duty. Yeah. Okay. Uh, C. Isn't that kind of strange? P. No, I just bury them in my backyard. Would the neighbors think that's fishy, like you're a serial killer or something? Oh, no, no, they're just poems that lost their way. In poetry parlance, it's called Killing Your Babies. What? Dear God, that sounds sick. Can't you just delete them? 
oh no, I'm old school. I need to print them out, then bury them whole. It's more organic, palpable, you know, save the planet and all that. It's also cathartic. It makes me feel good. And poems like it that way. It, what do you mean the poems like it that way? Do they talk to you like they told you how they want to be disposed of? Shh, don't talk about them that way. They're not garbage. They're my babies. They just got too many rejections in life from myopic tone deaf out of touch not for us editors. I don't want them to know they suck. Spare them the trauma and the therapy. Let them go in peace knowing they were loved, at least by me. Before you conk them on the heads and bury them in your backyard? Oh no, I don't knock them out. I turn them into origami, cranes, flap their wings, give them hope like Emily did. Tell them they're off on a journey far away, then gently lay them on the ground and cover them with the warm earth. Mm. It's kind of sweet in a way. Thank you. Being sad to the words is a poet's imperative. You have to love them, nurture them, let them falter and rise, be who they want to be. I'd like to think there's a garden of buried broken poems somewhere. They eventually emerge from the ground, sprout buds and reach for the sun. Poems that will outlive you and me. You have a way with words, my friend. We all do. You just have to have a yearning to share your own story. I do. It keeps me alive. Oh, that was great too, Julian. That was uh, really fun, um, and then had a great point too at the end. Great, great poems, uh, both of them. Yeah, thanks so much. That was Julian Matthews with a conversation about seeds, and of course the first poem explaining poetry to a nine-year-old. Uh, wonderful stuff as always from Julian. Uh, let's take a quick look at uh, the inbox, and let's do. Um, we have a uh, Ted Bernal Guevara has a poem for us. So uh, let's take a look at that. This is Made um, by Ted. Here we go, Made. We know of a miracle not yet performed or weaned from the strangest cow. We cater to that animal's needs in every way. It's a regular mannequin out in the streets, but it moves. Then we know our life is special, golden. As if the luster had originated from us, not only to be offered back to the idol, a daughter has been taken away from a mother who in turn had escaped a constant flaying of her face and body. There is a better luster, she thinks, but written law always putters with absence. It holds a red-tipped cane. Though compassion is a buckled walk on walked, a uh, buckled walk walked on, the mother must grow her patience, invite more weeds. Once she gets up from the floor, she must master her harvest. Her daughter are grain, the grains of her tender love, falling off the garden stalks in pretense of fodder. The miracle, once performed, is like giving birth the first time, out the doors of fateful sequence, the strangest being. So a good poem by Ted, Ted Bernal Guevara with Maid. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. He was active in the chat today, too. Um, and let's see... Um, Nate Jacob had a question on the open lines this week, and he had, has on last week's uh, poem to read to. So we'll close it out with this uh, for the open lines. This is Nate Jacob with a uh, the prompt last week was uh, to write a prose poem as a parable um, with an animal in it, which makes it actually a fable because I don't know the definitions of things. <laughs> so to write a fable prose poem. And uh, this was Nate Jacob, which he turned, like a few people did, into a hyphen. So uh, here's Nate Jacob's poem. At the bend in the river loop trail. Three trout in the slow deep of a shade eddy look up, 
wide-eyed at the constant colorful flow of humans seeking the cool and thrum of the waterfall upstream. Here at the bend are the best bits and morsels of granolas or gorps. At times, the old grape and the trout, silent and dark from above, wait, wondering why these humans trudge always uphill, flow headlong into the stream of the air they breathe. Do they even know that they are surrounded by air? They don't seem especially intelligent. What must these creatures constantly climb one after the other toward the source rather than turn about, let the mountain air press them downhill into the valley where so many others of their kind gather, spawning and feeding and spawning? The few headed upstream for what possible reasons the trout can only imagine. Human nature, chasing waterfalls from below. Fishy. <laughs> I love that fishy ending. Thanks so much. That was Nate Jacob with At the Bend in the River Loop Trail. Thanks for sharing that, Nate. And um, that will uh, wrap up the show for today. Um, let's do the Saiku really quickly. And the Saiku for this week is based on the story right here. So um, this is something I've been, I've been, you know, I follow climate change very closely because it's such a complicated um, subject that I just find it fascinating. And for the last, ever since, um, um, you know, the Al Gore movie came out, I've been uh, really reading the research and, and following it because it's a lot more complicated than uh, anybody would have you think in the media. And um, this article is really interesting. I've been sort of worried about this and warning my friends in Europe about it for a while, too. Gloomy climate calculation. Scientists predict a collapse of the Atlantic Ocean current to happen mid, mid-century. And so um, the AMOC, which is the um, um, Atlantic Meridional Oscillation, uh, current, is that right? Overturning circulation is what it stands for. Um, um, that is the thing that draws warm water up from like the Gulf of Mexico up into the northern Atlantic, and that's what makes Europe uh, warm. You know, like if you look at the map, England is at the same level as like Canada, and if it weren't for this warm current bringing warm water up to the coast, it would be as cold as like Calgary. <laughs> and so um, there's this current that's been going, but what happens is it's it's driven by salt, um, and so as the fresh water melts, um, it, it sort of blocks the salt overturning oscillation thing and um, slows down that conveyor belt that brings the warmth up north. And a really interesting thing, too, this whole article, which came out in Nature Communications, talking about this this um, collapse of the circu- uh, circulation, um, there's the early warning signals, and they, what they did is model it, and they got this time range of when it's probably going to end. But there's no mention, and I read the actual original article too, there's no mention of something else, which I've been fascinated by for a long time, which is the Beaufort Gyre, which um, is this uh, sort of circulation up in uh, above Canada that, that the winds make the, a sort of a, you know, a gyre, a little vortex, uh, or a huge vortex actually up there in the Arctic Ocean, and it traps all the fresh water there and doesn't let it out. Uh, when it's going a certain way, when it's going clockwise. And then every once in a while, it turns counterclockwise and dumps all the fresh water out. And um, when that happens, it's going to dump a bunch of cold, fresh water that's freezing, and then that turns to ice and drops the albedo. And that's going to freeze Europe, too. And, and that's what triggers the uh, end of the AMOC. And so uh, so we look at another article here that just came out, too. Um, it's, uh, you know, they're, they're predicting that to release, too. And so there's sort of this double whammy of cold coming toward Europe, which is um, interesting but frightening, too, given the uh, energy costs and how hard it is to stay warm. So anyway, that is my... They're actually interesting articles, so I read a lot. But uh, the Saiku based on them is right here, and it is this. 
Um, frozen lake in the freezer, climate change. Frozen lake in the freezer, climate change. That is my Saiku for the week, and that is the show for the week. Thanks, everyone, once again for joining us. Uh, the prompt for this week, um, and it's Katie, Katie uh, making the prompts now in the same way that I was. Um, but since she's she's doing the prompt thing, we might as well have her do the prompts too. And this next week's prompt, based on and encouraged or inspired by Anna Maria Caballero, um, that last poem, Soup Prayer, is this. Write a poem in which something is cooked. A very simple prompt this week. Write a poem in which something is cooked. That is next week's prompt, and that is the show. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Dante DiStefano. Um, he has a new book out, Midwhistle, and um, you probably recognize Dante's been on for Poets Respond at the beginning of the show many times over the last several years because he's a poet we publish frequently in Poets Respond. Um, he's also been in uh, issue number 73 of Rattle, um, a teacher and, and father. That's one of his, his poems come up, um, up upon a lot. Uh, but he has this new book, Midwhistle. I'm looking forward to reading it and talking more with Dante. That's Rattlecast number 205. Monday, August 7th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I hope to see you there. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and uh, I will talk to you later. Good night. <laughs>